0: The Interim Leader podcast is brought to you by Odgers Interim, the UK's number one interim management provider.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Media and Entertainment podcast with me, Banbo Saraclias. This month, we're touching upon the world of sport, prompted by the short-lived proposals for a football European Super League. Rather than looking at the reasons for their quick demise, however, we're going to use it as a starting point to discuss something slightly different with the help of economist Will Page. For those of you who didn't listen to our podcast with him earlier in the year, Will is the former chief economist of Spotify and has just published his first book, Tarzan Economics. In it, he talks about the economic drivers behind disruption in all industries and the lessons that can be learned from music's digital disruption in the early 2000s. So. What are the economics currently at play within the world of sport? How will they disrupt things moving forward? And what do they tell us about future commercial models?
0: Will, welcome back. Great to be here. And thanks so much for having me on what was my first podcast in the journey of the sport? There's been many since, but that was definitely the first and best. First impressions, last bam.
1: You're too kind. You're too kind. And uh, a lot's happened since we last got together. Tarzan Economics now being published. You're officially a published author. How's it all gone?
0: Uh, a lot's about to happen as well because i 'm officially published in the u k and on tuesday i 'll be officially published in the u s so there's kind of calm before the second storm if you like
1: fantastic that's 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 brilliant and just just for those who haven't listened to the first podcast uh just give us a, a quick synopsis of what the book's about
0: so the book essentially is saying that music, especially music, has got a twenty year head start dealing with disruption. Um, we spent the first 10 years fighting piracy and holding on to the old vine in the belief that this concept of buying CDs or iTunes downloads was going to carry on into the future. Clearly it wasn't. And in the second 10 years, we let go of that old vine and reached out to this new vine called Streaming or Access And that second 10 years saw us enter a recovery, which is the envy of every other sector of media, I would say. So this first to suffer, first to recover journey that music's been on, I think is so telling for everyone else, not just in media, but unfortunately, due to the pandemic, I think everybody's staring at their Napster moment right now. So my passion is teaching economics. And what I wanted to do with the book was give eight lessons that are transferable to every profession you can think of lawyers, bankers, journalists, accountants. Um, teachers, universities, everyone can apply these lessons to hopefully avoid the suffering and get straight to the recovering.
1: And it was really timely our discussion because then a few weeks later, um, <laughs> everything, yeah, everything kicked off with uh, with with football and uh, and the European Super League. So I wanted to get your opinion on that, both in terms of someone who's lived and breathed disruption, um, albeit in a different industry, and. It really, for me, having now read the book, uh, the example of um, of the European Super League and football really brought it to life in terms of it being in, an, in another sector in another context. And a few of chapters really stood out for me. Which, again, it would be really really handy if you can just give us a, a synopsis uh, of. And I, I think the two the two which really stood out um, was a bit around self interest versus common good, absolutely, and also the chapter around pivotal thinking. So if you can just kick it off by telling us a bit about those two, that would be really handy.
0: Great. I mean, yeah, you're right. Like, since our last talk, I think the book's hit five numbers and a bonus ball in the National Lottery. Like, the, <laughs> the, 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 the Super League really brought the book to life by accident. This was not intended. Um, but let's take the Chapter 5, self-interest versus the common good, and just explore one of the key concepts there very briefly. Um, it's Marxism. It's not Karl Marxism. It's going to be a different type of Marxism. It's Groucho Marxism. And Groucho Marx said many fantastic comments during his hilarious career. Um, my favourite one being, television was a great invention, because every time I switch it on, I want to read a good book. I think that's apt for a first-time author. But the most famous one that he he taught me when I reflect on Groucho Marx was when he said, I'd never want to join a club that would have me as a member. And what he was capturing there is this dilemma which faces collectives, like Groucho Marx, European Super League, where are we going here? Leagues are collectives. Just remember, leagues are collectives. You compete, but you need to compete with the enemy for the, for the game to have a, a product. Rangers hate Celtics, Celtic hate Rangers, but without them, there'd be nothing. So there's kind of interesting model of collectives. And you know, if you think about collectives in football, here in the UK, that is, you've got relegation. If you think about collectives in football, that is American football, you have no relegation. The structure of the collective's matters. But before you get into the detail of the collective, I think the most important lesson Groucho Marx taught was, you know, I'd never want to join a club that would have me as a member. The most valuable member of a collective, those super clubs have the least incentive to join and the greatest incentive to leave. And that, for me, is Groucho Marxism.
1: So then moving that onto, onto pivotal thinking, because one of the great things about, about the book is that you you... Um, talk through and you describe economic principles and models in a very simple way Um, so simple that actually someone like myself can understand it but um, in terms in terms of pivotal thinking take that now into into the context that I guess the big six as we call them um, in the um, in the English League find themselves in you know Florentino Perez came up with with a really good quote and you know we're not here to I guess, argued for or against the European Super League. I think, I think that's been done by many podcasts and articles over the last few weeks. Um, we won't get involved in in that way. But actually, one of the things which he mentioned really stood out for me. He said football has 4 billion fans around the world. But he also claimed that 40% of people between 16 and 24 were no longer interested. And that interest was declining. If we don't do something, it won't last long. Football has to change and it has to adapt. Surely he's right.
0: Yeah, well, in pivotal thinking, I think I hooked that chapter around this expression. I learned from the famous ad man, Rory Sutherland, from the Ogilvy group, where he said, the opposite of a good idea can also be, and then you took a long pregnant pause, a good idea. And I love that approach of just questioning, you know, the logic behind people's decisions, to see whether there's a better idea you could put on the table. And I think we can apply that pretty well here. So let's just deal with his remarks. You know, he is obviously the hate figure here. There's a bit of a pile on going on. there has been a very hysterical reaction by fans, but I think he does have a point. If we look at golf, another professional sport that I'm sure your company is heavily involved in appointments for, and golf's got that problem of young people just not coming through. You know, it's an old person sport. And because of this thing called life that presents a lifetime value challenge to the sport. Uh, if we look at tennis, you know, another professional sport, I think they've got challenges in that Djokovic is a household name in Britain for two weeks out of 52 a year. The other 50, nobody could care who he is. You could pass him in Sainsbury's and not say hello. So they've got challenges in terms of relevance. So then you go to football and I think he does have a point. I mean, I went once went to an Arsenal game. Uh, and my ticket cost £80. I'm in the upper tier at the Emirates, and it's against Everton, Roberto Martinez Everton. It's a quality game of football. It's God knows how many internationals play on that pitch. In front of me was a father with three sons, so they've just coughed up, what, three, four years' worth of Spotify to go to this game. And three sons were looking at their iPads where the game was going on. So I think there's a challenge there in terms of how do you get the engagement from the current young, gen- let's call it millennials, that we were complacently assured of in the past. There's just so many more distractions for people's time. So how do you make the product better? That's the challenge that they've got. How do you raise the game so it's more appealing? Now, I think he's right in identifying the problem that young people won't care about football as much as their elders. And that problem is gonna grow over time due to this thing called life. But I thought he was wrong about the solution.
1: Mm -hmm. And there's something there about supply and demand i mean i'm talking talking to an economist is but you know supply and demand and um and the quality of of that supply you know at the moment and look it's it's as a result of covid i put on sky sports i'm guaranteed to find a football game of some sort you know whether that's in the premier league or, or the french league or whatever it may be um is there too much football now
0: Yes, uh, I think they've definitely uh, they've committed the cardinal sin that the property market would talk about, which is if you build one too many houses, you collapse the property market. You have to make sure you keep supply and demand in equilibrium. And I think you have self-interest by the various people here. So the Carabao Cup, um, the FA Cup, the Premiership, UEFA, internationals are all competing for a scarce good with little regard for what their competitors are doing. We call this the tragedy of the commons. So later this afternoon, I take the train back home to Scotland to see my parents. I'm from a fishing village called Eyemouth. And there, what you've seen is Imouth fishermen have overfished North Sea, Peterhead fishermen have overfished North Sea, Pfeiffer fishermen have overfished North Sea. End result, there's not enough fish stops to justify fishing. There's more museums of fishing boats in Eyemouth than there are actually industrial fishing boats. That tragedy of the commons, which we use in environmental economics, I think is playing out here, which is, Everybody's competing for more sport with little regard for their competitors. That's self-interest. A common good would demand for an Uber collective to allocate the exposure of sport better. But I pivot from round balls to overballs. If you look at the state of rugby just now, it's a shambles. It really is. What is Channel 5 doing showing some rugby? And Channel 4 doing showing some rugby? And potentially the Six Nations going off free-to-air viewing as well. You, know, you need a collective which says it's easy to find rugby. None of these apps are easy to navigate on your Google Chromecast phone, not even for me, less so for a millennial. And you're losing the eyeballs. You're losing the battle for attention. So you've got to compete on convenience. And I think rugby is a good example where it's now inconvenient to work out how to watch, let's say, Gloucester versus Wasps at the weekend, if indeed it's being shown at the weekend. They might park it on a Tuesday night at 11 o'clock in the graveyard shift. So they've not won convenience. And if you lose a battle for convenience, someone else is winning and you never get it back. Now, so over balls back to round balls, I think soccer is going to be entering a similar predicament. So I get a Sky account, I get to watch people. Now I need a BT account. Okay, so you've maximized revenues. I get it. Good economic case. Capitalism got that. Now it becomes inconvenient. Or oh, now there's something on BBC. Or now I can watch the Champions League on YouTube. So I don't need to pay those premium accounts. It's just inconvenient. And this is self-interest. This is a tragedy of the commons. And football needs to be very careful. It climbed a great mountain, just like music did in the 90s, but from a great height is a great fall. You know, back to the book here, I tell a story of how easy it was in the music industry in the 90s when we used to buy and sell CDs by the weight of pallet. I think football has not used such dumb metrics in its business models, but I think they're going to get a similar weight of wake up call, which is. You cannot continue to buy and sell CDs by the weight of pellet when the internet has completely upended your business. So it's a bit worrying. You know, they, they're going to need to pivot and pivot hard here.
1: And this is where it gets really complex, doesn't it? Because you have, you have the game of football, the game that we all fe- fell in love with when we were kids, playing it and then following our team. You have what we watch on TV or go to the stadium to watch. You then have football as a form of entertainment. So you, you talk about the attention economy. So why would I watch football as opposed to any other sport? Why would I watch sport when I could be playing on my PlayStation or watching Netflix? And then you have football as a business. And when the business people start getting involved and their drivers are obviously different from the people, from the customers who go, who go and watch and part with their hard-earned and cash, whether that be to watch at a stadium or, um, or watch on the TV. So I guess, I guess my, my next question to you as, as, as a chief economist is, how do you see the model shaping up over the next five to 10 years? What, what will be the key drivers? What will be the difference in the product that we watch and how we watch it?
0: So I think we can take a lesson from the book where I tell the story of uh, the Atlanta Falcons. And I got to interview Stephen Cannon, the chief executive of the Atlanta Falcons. And they had a, a $1.9 billion NFL stadium built from scratch, um, only to be trumped by Cronké and LA Rams who have got a five billion stadium, <laughs> typical America, you know, um, competing on, on spend here. But of course, what's happening in Los Angeles has, I guess, more to do with the Olympics than the Rams. But the, the Falcon story is a really, really relevant one here because he was just such a visionary from, for, for, from what I could understand. He, he looked at the problem of tailgating in American football where hundreds, thousands of cars are parked outside the stadium two, three hours before the game, doing barbecues, having drinks, socializing, perhaps not even going into the stadium. It's just a social event in America. Is to tailgate, perhaps more than actually watch the game. The game is secondary. And he saw that as market failure. So he went around to the restaurants in Atlanta and basically said, how much does it cost to cook the best chicken dish in the city? Yeah, this chicken dish is going to cost you $28. He said, I'll pay you more to make that chicken dish inside my stadium so I can sell it for less, because this stadium has to be a place to dine in. Trail- tailgating is market failure, fix the market, get those tailgaters inside my stadium dining, and then I've got their attention for the game as well. Then I've got their attention so dad can take son to the merchandise shop and spend $200 on merchandise. They can't do that if you're tailgating and rush in for the game and rush out because of the traffic getting out of the stadium. So it's just a fascinating example of just, how do you compete for attention? And he was looking at, what's the problem I'm trying to fix? Well, it stares at me every day. People are outside the stadium when they should be in. So I'll subsidize the, you know, the cost of getting them in to get the benefits of what they can spend once they're in. I mean, Atlanta's a hot place. He took, he took the, bo- the cost of a bottle of water from $6 down to two and made more money by doing so. Mm-hmm. That's clever thinking. That's not self-interest greed. That's common good solutions. Make it a collective place for people to come, dine, shop, talk, socialize inside, not outside. And if you look at the quality of what's happening with football, if you look at the quality of alternatives to going to the game, if I stick with Arsenal for a second, this sounds a bit peculiar for people who haven't participated in, but there's a huge business on YouTube, Twitch, Discord, especially using Discord now where people are watching other people watch the game. Sounds weird. In gaming culture, this has been embedded for years, decades even. Watching other people play games is a big business. And I've always said, if you want to understand the future of media, understand what's happening in gaming today and just scale it. It's a great way to understand where we're going. So I will watch a chat called Hugh Wizzy, watch an Arsenal game, whilst doing work, catching up on emails and everything else. I will not listen to Radio 5. I'm not going to buy a ticket. I'm not going to pay a Sky Premium package. He's on YouTube and he's free and he's ad-funded and he's got subscribers ranging at about 200,000, so twice the capacity of the stadium at least. Okay, perhaps the people negotiating premiership football rights think that's a joke, a quirk, a niche, an outlier. Not so. This is the tide rising around your ankles and it keeps on rising and you've got to deal with it.
1: And you've, you've done some work recently with with Twitch, haven't you, um, around, around yeah. all of this. So there are lessons there to be learned both for the rights holders, but also for the sports broadcasters uh, too, I imagine.
0: Yeah, the Twitch project was just fascinating. I mean, the background to it was Twitch approached me and said, if you've got a bit of a famine as opposed to fee cycle in your book production, could you take the keys to our car, look under our bonnet, explain the economics of live streaming? And there's a real fundamental question which music is asking that sport is going to have to ask as well, which is all the advancements we've seen with live streaming over the past 14, 15 tricky months, they're not going to go away when live music returns. So how do they coexist? You know, Reading and Leeds have sold 120,000 tickets each for their festivals in August. This is back. You know, we are back to standing in muddy fields watching a dot on the horizon, sing your favorite songs. It's coming back. Mm-hmm. But live streaming isn't going to go away. So the coexistence question is interesting. And just two or three kind of bullet point findings from that report. One was that I saw how artists worked out how to monetize what they were doing in their own time, writing, rehearsing, recording songs. Opportunity cost zero. Fans are now monetizing that. Two, it was additive. That is, live streaming was helping streams on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon. It was additive as opposed to substitutional. And three, just the fact that you could have your own direct channels to your fans as opposed to going through an aggregate platform. And I can see this building out into sport as well. I mean, I'll give you one example that's interested to me from a soccer perspective is a Liverpool Football Club have a premium channel on YouTube. They have 6 million subscribers, which is broadly the audience of watching Match of the Day on BBC. And they're now selling a premium package to those 6 million subscribers where you get deeper access to the club. They're in a collective, They're not threatening to leave the collective, let's just park the Super League situation for a second, but they're working out how to act in their self-interest and balance those interests. And it'll be very interesting to see whether, you know, fans are A, willing to pay the BT and Sky packages to watch Liverpool, and B, pay the Premiership, uh, the YouTube Premium Channel package to get closer to Liverpool, or do they swap? Mm -hmm. Do they swap? Mm -hmm. Um, So it's going to be fascinating to watch this, this one play out, but it's... Is that ability to go direct now, which is going to be an interesting one to, to follow.
1: And I guess the other component to add to that is, is the player um, themselves, right? Because you know, in the same way that you're talking there about musicians and what they were doing in their downtime and how they're monetizing that, surely now that there's a massive opportunity there for the sports person, the individual, the football player, the athlete, the basketball player, um, to go direct to their fans um, and yeah. almost bypass the traditional uh, roots, routes to market,
0: and that I think is hard for me to kind of predict where that's going to go. But I think you're right to flag it. What I would like to shed light on is if you look at the contract structure that you'll have in sport, I don't think I think that resembles a straitjacket. Given the amount of opportunities that exist now mm. for sporting individuals to explore monetization, explore engagement um, as well. So I think from a contractual perspective, you might see a lot of disruption in terms of that's too tight. That doesn't give me the creator person who's running around that pitch, kicking a ball, the person who's on Wimbledon Centre Court number one, getting the eyeballs enough scope to explore what I could do on my own social channels. Um, there's a great article in The Economist from last week called Surfing the Economy, The New Creator Economy. And it's just fascinating to think about how these creator tools really are changing the game. I'll give you a very quick example from journalism. Um, if I'm an editor of a newspaper and Bam is a, a sort of well-known journalist, and for whatever reason, I sack you. You're out of a job. Ten years ago, you had nothing else to do. You're bad. You're, you're, you're damaged goods in the world of journalism. No other newspaper is going to touch you. Now you can hop to Substack, monetize your own platform way better, see more of that money, and have freedom to write about whatever you want. <laughs> What's not to like? Yeah. <laughs> so you have got the collective structure of the newspaper versus the self-interest of ban the freelance journalist, just going it alone. And I just think we're in for a bit of a shock now, back to the theme of Tarzan economics of letting go of the old contractual vines and reaching out to new ones where creative tools really have come of age now. We're entering a flywheel period. The more creative tools, the more creators that go alone, the more that go alone, the more demand for creative tools.
1: Yeah. And just on that, there's, there's, there's something there about one of the other topics we've discussed before um, and, and you mentioned in your book, and that's around creating your own job description. Creating your next role and uh, something that like you did very successfully—not once but twice, I think. <laughs> probably, probably. I, bla- I, b-
0: I think it's called blagging it twice, not successfully <laughs>
1: twice. But there is some, there is something there about about uh, as you said, creating your own job description. You know, you took the concept of a chief economist to the music industry, then you took that to to Spotify. I'm going to ask you now to take it to the world of sport and and potentially to the world of football. What would be the sales pitch for a chief economist to a football club into the world of sport. Um, what could you provide? What, what could you give?
0: So I was speaking on behalf of the individual approaching the firm, just to kind of mm-hmm. clarify it. The individual could be in any number of sports, any number of professions. The firm is the organisation that's going to be paying your wages in the future should the job work out. I think the question you've got to pose is, what makes you, the firm, think that in an age of so much disruption, where disruption has been accelerated due to COVID, and it ain't going to slow down. When that digital tide is around our ankles and rising fast, what makes you think that you actually know what you need? Now, who's tapped you on the shoulder to say, "Here's what's coming around the corner and it's going to hit you like a train"? I, I I really ask the listener to really put themselves in the shoes of that position of just thinking, "What makes you think that?" The, the Wimbledon Tennis Association knows what they need to work out what tomorrow's going to look like. And I've put that really clearly in a job description. Not a chance. The Olympics Committee, not a chance. None of these sports institutions, they, they'll be like ostriches, head in the sand, turkeys waiting for Christmas. What's that quote that Al Gore had about climate change? The Hardest thing about convincing people as a problem is when a job's depend on not understanding it. Expect a lot of that within the firm. So what they're going to advertise for is clearly what, not what's going to be needed. So when you're dealing with disruption, don't wait for your job description, create your job description. You know, if you are being interviewed for the premier league, you know, can you put together a proposal which says you're doing it all wrong. And if you don't get the kids, then in 20 years time, you're a secondary sport and you've lost your primacy mm. up to you, which fork in the road you want to go, but we need to change route here. So I, I really question whether today's job descriptions are actually what the firm needs. And then. What I hope with the book and not just me but with many other people contributing to this discussion um, I'll name check one especially which is Adam Grant I think he's got some fantastic ted talks for those who are short on time where you can just understand you know organizational psychology but just you know have belief that if you think you know what the firm needs sell that in as your job description and do not trust their job description the interview is not about here's what we need for this role it's about I'll tell you what I'm going to bring to this role
1: yeah. And as a, as, as, as a recruiter, I mean, I, I look at the last 12 months and I really do see perhaps the start of a new look C-suite amongst federations and amongst rights, rights holders. I mean, you know, we've talked about the chief economist role, but, you know, perhaps chief innovation officer, perhaps chief communications officer, chief diversity and inclusion officer. Uh, I think there's something there about stakeholder engagement and how you engage not only with your community, but also stakeholders uh, um, in government, perhaps. There's something there about culture. I do think what we've seen over the last 12 months will give birth to a whole range of new roles.
0: Yeah, I I love that. You just inspired an idea here. So let me just riff on that for a quick second. I'd love to produce a chart for you guys, for one of your sort of marketing materials, which is to do an index, an index chart looking at two sort of revenue streams or two allocation streams, but you're all starting them both in the same 20-yard line. Look at the index of English Premiership football revenues, let's say over the past 20-odd years, and money spent on human resources in English Premiership football clubs over the past 20 years. And it'd be fascinating to see how revenues have exploded, but investment in HR, I would argue, has lagged far behind. I know the general counsel of one English Premiership football club who went into that role around about two thousand. 8, 2009, so more than a decade ago. And he he t- said to me that there was no HR department when he joined. <laughs> we are well into the 21st century here. Like, this is a very big English Premiership Club. But it's just like, what is that? Now, if you look at technology, HR is the king, the queen, the castle of the company. If you cannot hire those engineers, you ain't going to keep your growth rate. It starts with HR, it finishes with HR. Yet in so many older companies, HR is just disregarded and you know onto the hard shoulder of the organizational structure. Yeah. Um, if we can't make it attractive for people to come to our work, what do we need to do? Do we need to change the location of our work and move to King's Cross? Otherwise, people won't come work for us. What do we need to optimize for to make people want to work for us? And it's competition. Labor is scarce, especially skilled labor and tech. You have to compete on all sorts of metrics, maybe just to wrap that point up, um, hugely inspired in terms of HR and tech by a woman in, in California and in San Francisco called Diva Santiago, who builds out companies for Ron Conway. And if you don't know who Ron Conway is, you need to learn about Silicon Valley, like the original godfather investor of the Valley. And she said, in my job, I focus on culture, 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 culture builds product, product builds profit, but I never focus on profit. And I was like, wow, so, you know, she's got companies where there are no payroll departments because all the staff are on stock. Quite interestingly, like, there's no salaries. Everybody's on yeah. stock. So I was like, so you've always focused on culture. You disregard product because culture will build the product and you never think about profit. Imagine applying this to a sports industry in the UK. I said, so what was the last company you built out there? And she said, Dropbox. And I'd pretty much dropped my coffee. <laughs> you know, would focusing on profit. Have built Dropbox? No we focusing on product to built Dropbox, probably not. Get the culture right, and culture works out. We all need somewhere to save our files. They build the product and then the product brings the profit. And I think from me to you, Bam, uh, that's tech today. Where's sport looking like in terms of yesterday? I think there's something that we can take from that.
1: Yeah. Um, fascinating discussion as always Will thank you so much for coming back let's see what happens in the next two months because you might be back in uh, (laughs) in further down the line in the summer when we're talking about something else but uh, you know if people who are listening haven't yet ordered their copy of Tarzan Economics I can definitely recommend it.
0: I appreciate all the support you guys have given the book as well, very grateful
1: see you soon Will, cheers take care, bye bye I really hope you enjoyed listening and don't forget to like and subscribe for new episodes in our media and entertainment series.